Hello. Hi. So if you're a guest with us, I haven't got to uh, say my name yet. I'm Jamie, and uh, I am a co-pastor with Heidi. We co-pastor together. Um, and you wouldn't know it this morning so much because I lead worship as well as Julie. We would do it together, and, uh, and then I'm preaching all on my own. So if you're a guest, you wouldn't necessarily see this, but I'm the only male on staff around here. <laughs> Sometimes it's a little awkward. Sometimes it's a little hard, but it's great. Uh, we have a bunch of great women who are, are part of our staff here, and we do a lot of uh, great things together. But I really appreciate Heidi being able to, to work together to speak and to preach and to teach, and sometimes together and sometimes separate. I love the times when she just teaches. It's, for many, many reasons, it's pretty nice. And I really like speaking together with her. But today I am speaking, um, and we're going to be in the book of Ephesians chapter 2 so if you have a Bible, you're going to want to open it to Ephesians chapter 2 because you might want to circle and highlight some things. It will be up on the screen if you don't have a Bible with you today. That is okay. So one of the things, I got car keys. Uh, Ashley, can I throw these to you? Thank you. And she just left. I don't know. She's out of here. She's like, I'm going to fall asleep if I stay here. So one of the things that's really important to Heidi and I is travel. It's like our hobby, and it's a thing that we are passionate about, and we love to do it as much as we possibly can. And as we have traveled around different places, we've learned that there are cultural differences. Are you guys aware of this fact, that in the world there are cultural differences in different places? So on our recent trip to Costa Rica, where we were meeting with our missionaries, we're going to take a whole team of people back to in December. Uh, we went up to the Hill Tribe people, and uh, the missionary I was walking with, he said, all right, here's just a little bit of cultural protocol. I'm like, okay. He says, we're going to come up to their house. I'm like, all right. And he says, and we're going to go, and we're not going to knock on the door. We're just walking in the house. I'm like, what? Okay. And when you go into the living room, and you just sit down. And when they're ready to greet you, they'll come up. I'm like, oh, okay, that's different. And that's what exactly what we did. He said, if you knocked on the door, it would be an offense. Yeah, and if you spoke first, it would be offensive to them. So in this native culture, it's you, you, walk, you just walk into the house. Doors don't mean much. You walk in the house. You sit down in the middle of their living room. They're in there doing whatever they're doing. One guy was even taking a nap, and you just sit there and wait until he wakes up from his nap and says, oh, hi, good to see you. And he reaches out and shakes his hand, and then he had some things you had to say. Cultural differences, right? If somebody did that in our house today, if, somebody, if one of you came to my house and just walked in the front door and sat down in the living room, I'd say, hi, Audrey. Uh, that's probably what I'd do because it'd be Audrey that would do something like that. But it would be weird, right? Especially if I don't know you. Like, I, I never met this person before. So there's lots of these things. In Japan, if you slurp your noodles, that's considered a compliment. But if you do it at my dinner table, it's disgusting, right? Uh, how about this one? Uh, the beckoning gesture. Let's see. That's, uh, there it is. Okay, the beckoning gesture. This one right here. You guys know this one? And what does this mean? Come here. Come here. Come here. If you do this in the Philippines, they'll arrest you because it, mean, it's, it means come here, but it's only used for dogs. And it's like this ultimate, this ultimate insult that you give people. They can arrest you for doing this. This one over here means what? Yeah, everything's like, so if somebody looks like this and I go like that and then Doug goes like this, I've just said, come here, Doug. And he says, okay, I'm coming. In many countries, this sign over here means a whole different thing. Do you get what I'm saying? Did you follow? Did you pick up what I said there? A whole different thing. Okay. I just want to be clear what I'm saying. Okay. 
So there's all these cultural differences around the world. I think Masaru knows because it's in Brazil, right? Masaru is, Masaru is a Brazilian Japanese and he, he knows. That's, he knew both of those, the slurping of the noodles and the okay sign, yeah. Um, everywhere we go, we have cultural differences. Signs mean different things. Words mean different things. And the Bible is exactly the same way. When we read the Bible, we are reading a book, actually 66 different books, written by 40 different authors over the span of 1,500 years in multiple cultural contexts. Okay, so it just is different as Brazil's okay sign from our okay sign. The cultures in the Bible are that vastly different. So when we come reading it in our English translations, we'll just read through and we're like, oh, this word means this in my culture, and so I understand it as this. And we can miss what the author's trying to say. We can misinterpret Scripture because we don't get the cultural differences. And so it's really important that as we come to the text, we come with open eyes and we realize that what was written in the book of Psalm by David in the 10th century BCE, that there is cultural differences there than there will be for Paul in the 1st century CE. And that are different from you and me in 2023. I don't know what century this is. I guess it gets confusing. 21st, 20th, I don't know how that divide works. Whatever century we're in, it's going to be different. And so we want to look at that a little bit. Now, did I just skip a page? Oh, it went front and back. I hate it when it does that. So to understand the book of Ephesians, I'm going to have to get a little teachery today and teach you a little bit about the model of what Paul, how Paul thinks as he is writing this text. And we need to understand how he thinks in order to really get the fullness of the understanding of the book of Ephesians. And today is a terrible, terrible day to be teachery. So I've been preachery up to this point, right? A little excited, a little bit agitated, a little bit like I had too much coffee, I'm speaking too fast, right? Now when I go teachery, we speak a little slower, we draw on the board, and people fall asleep. So what I need you to do is do your best to stay awake. And so what I'm going to do is Audrey is going to pass out some paper right now. And because you might have your bulletins, but this isn't big enough. So if everybody could have one sheet of paper, hopefully you've got a pen. If you need a pen, um, maybe Audrey will get you that too. He's a really nice guy. He says, no, he's not going to get you a pen. But somebody might. We'll see. We have lots of free pens. Lots of free pens. Take one home. It says Pullman Foursquare right on it. So I'm going to get a little teachery this morning. We're going to talk about the cultural differences. We're going to talk about how Paul sees the work of God in the world and how he saw it before he was a Christian and after he was a Christian. And we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 2 to kind of see this. So as these things are being passed out, I want to read the text to you. Is that okay? All right, good. If you said no, I would say I'm doing it anyway. So here we go. We're just going to read verses 1 through 10, 10 verses. You were dead through, the trans, through trans, trespass and sin in which you once lived, following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient. It's very encouraging so far. All of us once lived amongst them in, our pa- in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of our flesh and our senses, and we were by nature children of wrath, like everyone else. Here's my favorite word in the Bible, but. Verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead through our own trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. 
by grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. And when I feel a little bit old school liturgical, I say, this is the word of God for the people of God. And then the people of God who is you would say, thanks be to God. And so I feel old school and liturgical right now, and I'm going to do it. So this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. And this is one of those passages that we like know, right? This is like, we are thankful for this stuff. This is boilerplate gospel message stuff. If you've been around the church for a while, you know this is the truth. We were sinners. Hooray. We were dead in our sin. Hooray. But God. But God made us alive through Jesus Christ. By God's grace, we are saved, and it's not by our works. So we hear these things over and over and over again. Boilerplate gospel stuff. We understand it because we came to faith through Jesus, and now we're trying to live it out. So what is there possibly left to learn from this passage? Let me tell you what. There is a whole big thing going on behind this. This whole big construct, this whole big picture that you're going to get to draw out in a little bit that Paul has, like, it just kind of hit him like a flash of lightning after, his, after he came to faith. And we're going to look at it and see what it is. This passage is built like a teeter-totter. You guys know teeter-totters? That horrible ride you had in the school playground, and the kids would get on there, and you're on with somebody about equal size, and you go up, down, and then they make the really, really big ones, and it goes way up and way down, and sure enough, one kid jumps off when you're at the top, right? Just <laughs> make sure, boom, like that. So this is a teeter-totter passage, and the, the, the point, the center point of the passage is in verse 7. It says this, so that in ages to come, he, God, might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us humans in Christ Jesus. That phrase, in ages to come, it's really, really important because Paul has this concept, and everybody in the Old Testament is working from this same concept. There are two ages. There is this age. Let me see if I can write. Um, if I misspell a word or if it's illegible, I apologize in advance. No spell checkers. Okay, so we got this age, and I like to put in parentheses the word now. Which age are we living in? This age, right? All right, and then there's this other age. It's called the age to come. And you know what that is? It's not yet. Yeah. Who put that up there? That was my fault. All right, so we got the, the age to come and this age, the now and the not yet. So Hebrews, not the book of Hebrews, but Hebrew people, the Jewish people in Paul's day would have known the Old Testament backwards and forwards. They would have known the first five books of the Bible. The men would have had the first five books of the Bible completely memorized if you were 13 or older. And then after that, they would regularly be reading the Psalms and the Proverbs and the Prophets. 
And so they had this, this concept, especially from the prophets, that we live in a time that is now, and there are things going on here, but there is an age to come, right? And that's not an uncommon thing in the world. We Basically, any religion and any non-religion has got the same conception. There is this age, the now, and there is the age to come. So let's just think about a modern monotheistic culture. So generally speaking, the United States thinks of itself in the terms of Christianity, or has until real recently, and it's kind of divided more and more. But, you know, let's say in the 1950s or 1960s, people said, I'm a Christian. So they did this monotheist worldview that says there's one God, and in this age, it's broken, and there's evil, and there's death. But in the age to come, there's heaven, right? We get heaven in the age to come. If you look at the atheist, they say the same thing. Like, in this world, there is evil, there's brokenness, there's goodness, there's death, there's slavery, there's violence, there's all of these things in this life. And in the age to come, there is oblivion. So we're getting out of this thing, and we're not going anywhere. But there is an age to come, and it's just oblivion. The Hindu would say, in the age to come, it's you do over until you get it right. You go back into this age, and you try again, and you skip out into that age, and they're like, nope, not, go, go back, try it again. And you keep going, and you keep going until you get it right. Then you've got the Buddhist thinking. In this age, same thing. We have suffering. We have violence. We have death. And so what we're trying to do is in the next life, to get to this next life, we want to achieve complete detachment so that we could even light ourselves on fire and be so detached from our pain that we wouldn't know and we would just die and ascend into this other life. So we want to look closely, though, at the Jewish construct because these are the things that we're immersed in but the Old Testament and New Testament Jews believed in a different way of looking at things. And here's how they saw it. In this age, I'm a, there's evil and brokenness. I'm going to write just broke with a period. There is death. There is slavery. Now, that's physical slavery, but it's also mental slavery, it's also social slavery, it's also slavery to culture, it's all those rules that are put on us that are unspoken that we have to live by, but it is also, you know, being an actual slave, a servant. There is violence and there is this word that we don't use real often, curse. And that's pointing back to Genesis chapter 3. After Adam and Eve fell, God says, now you're living under a curse. And it's not that God pronounces the curse, but that we just kind of chose it. And it's, you know, that the woman is going to try to rule over the man, and the man's going to try to rule over the woman, and the man's going to have to work, and there's going to be weeds in his yard, and they're going to be pokey weeds, and, and everything's going to be hard, and the woman's going to have childbirth. I'm sorry, women, I think you got the harder end of things. Weeds are bad, but childbirth is terrible. So, so we live under this curse. So this is the Old Testament view of things. Now, who would agree that we still think this way, right? <laughs> that we look around the world, it's got evil and brokenness, right? Death. It's everywhere, and it's inevitable, and it's happening to us in a thousand different ways. Slavery is still happening. Physical slavery is still happening, but there are still, many of us are slave to uh, addictions. Many of us are slave to relationships. Many of us are slave to depression and different things like that. Violence seems to be the only way we can solve problems and we're living under the curse. This is the Old Testament and New Testament view of this age. Now, the Old Testament Jews, okay, this is until Jesus came, they said 
but there is an age to come. It's the not yet. And in that age to come, everything is flipped, right? So where we have evil and brokenness, we have justice and love. Justice and love. On the other side of death, what would we have? What kind of life? Eternal. It's like forever. It doesn't, it doesn't end. So eternal life. On the other side of slavery, we have, did I put this on the screen? No, you guys are just guessing really well. On the other side of violence, we have, see if you can get this one. Nice. And it's the Hebrew word for peace, which is shalom. Oh, gosh, you guys are good. At the end of today, you will have a master's degree. Uh, let's see. And on the opposite side of the curse, we would have, anybody got a guess? Why am I teaching? You guys are good. It's been uh, 13 years, and you guys have got everything I need to teach you. Okay. So let's just sing the doxology and go home. No. So that's, that's the model that they, they worked with. And then in the middle here, they had this thing called the Day of the Lord. If you read Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, Joel, the prophets, those Old Testament guys that are really, really depressing because they're like, there's going to become a day of wrath and God's going to come down and he's going to punish the wicked and there's going to be blood and the sky is going to be dark and the sun is going to go out and there's not going to be any light anywhere. This is the day of the Lord. It's the day of judgment, the day of wrath. It's the day that when you read the Old Testament, it just sounds really scary. But the Jewish people believe that there's going to be a day of the Lord that will happen. God will come and judge and suddenly this age will end and this age will begin. We will move right from one to the other. And this is exactly how Paul thought. He was a Jewish teacher. He was smart. He didn't just have a master's degree. He had like a PhD in the Jewish religion. He was, you know, ascending higher and higher in the ranks of his religious order. He was like not just a pastor. He was not just a district supervisor. He was headed toward national pastor or something. He was working his way up the ladder. He was, he was sharp. And then one day... The word that he uses in the scripture here is this, an apocalypse happened. <laughs> kind of a crazy word, but apocalypse literally means a revealing. And he's riding along on his horse, and suddenly out of the sky comes this bright light. You know this story? This bright light, and I think I have a picture of it. This is an actual picture of how it happened. Uh, yeah. And, and he falls off his horse, and he is completely blinded by this light, and he hears a voice from heaven saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he's like, who are you? And he's like, it's Jesus, the one you are persecuting. And Paul literally meets the Son of God after his resurrection, and Paul is blinded by that light. And really, it's just a reflection of what was already going on inside him. He was blind, partly right here in this this two-system theory. He was a little bit blind. So and then he spent three years out in the desert, is what it says. He said, out in the desert of Arabia, it sounds really boring, but he was probably in some town, and he was getting to know the stories of Jesus. And he was trying to reconcile how this Jewish man, who was Jewish in his faith, who was in, in the same religious order as Saul was, could die and come back to life and say he was the son of God. And what are the implications of that? How does that change everything? So he spent three years trying to work this stuff out. And then when Paul re-enters life, he has a whole new perspective on things. 
He has a whole new framework. And that framework is going to look like this. Where is it at? It's on my next page. I'm going to draw it for you. All right, so we still have, there we go, this age is still here, right? This is still happening. I'm going to take my day of the Lord thing off a little bit. This is still what we experience. Saul met Jesus, but he still saw the world had evil and brokenness. Saul met Jesus, but he still knew people were going to die. Even the people that Jesus rose from the dead were going to die. We still see that there is slavery. Paul writes letters to slaves and slave owners. We still see that there is violence going on. Christians were being used as torches. We still see that people are living under the curse. Men and women can't get along. They're still fighting. Men are still having to struggle to make ends meet. Women are still having pain in childbirth. This doesn't seem to be changing. But Jesus came, so something's different. Now he says, realizes that this age to come, which this is, this is heaven, This age to come seems to be colliding. It's coming into the age that we're in. That the things of the age to come, justice and love, life, freedom, shalom, blessing, are invading into this kingdom of evil and brokenness, death, slavery, curse. Paul calls this stuff here, this is the, the, the powers and principalities. This is the, the rulers of the air. He's like, guys, the evil death, slavery, violence, curse stuff that you're experiencing, we're just breathing that. That's just in the air that we breathe. It's, it's like you, you go outside and you take a deep breath, and what are you breathing in? You're just breathing in this world system. We're just learning how to live life from this perspective. But Jesus comes, and here he is. He is the firstborn. He is the, the progenitor. He is the one that comes out in front, and because of his cross, he is able to bring this life into this dark world. The not yet is coming into the now. You get that? The not yet is coming into the now. And he believes, and you'll see this later on, that there is another day, and I'm just going to put a two there, that the second coming will come, and this will fully pass away, and this will fully come to life. But now... The day of the Lord was the day that Jesus died on the cross and made a way for all of this goodness to invade. That's what we talk about when we sing, your goodness is coming after, it's running after me. That God has, in his love and kindness and grace and goodness that Paul talks about here in this passage, has opened a way for all of the good things of heaven to invade the things of earth. So now when we see death... We know that death isn't the end, that God will bring life out of death. Tim Keller recently passed away, and he's a guy that we've quoted here for years and years. He was a Presbyterian pastor in New York City. Disagree with him on a lot of things, but he got pancreatic cancer, and toward the end of his, his days, it was like the last three days of his life, he made this statement. Somebody asked him, how is it that you can hold on to your faith in God even though you are dying this horrible death? And he said, in this life, there is horrible things, and they happen over and over and over again. Evil and brokenness happen over and over again. Death, slavery, violence, curse, sickness, pancreatic cancer happens over and over again. But what I know is that my God takes and makes good things out of the bad over and over and over again up until the very end. 
You guys follow that? Till his very end, till the moment he died, God was going to be taking those bad things, and even that bad thing, his death, was turning it into something good. New life. New life. So now this is Paul's model, and this is much messier than, than I wanted it to be. But you get the point. Paul is saying that these things are no longer separate, but they now overlap and intertwine. And so we're out here as Christians, followers of Jesus, we're living our lives, and some days we're, we're falling under this stuff. Sometimes our behaviors and our actions, our thoughts, our attitudes, they're out of this power of the air that we're breathing. Sometimes we treat each other from this perspective. But God is working this over here. And so sometimes we find ourselves doing the things that, we, that are godly. Sometimes we find ourselves with right thoughts. We find ourselves bringing shalom. And the invitation of the passage is to move toward the second list, to find that we can be changed and transformed. There are three implications, and that's the first one I want to talk about that I just wanted to bring up about this. Three implications about this happening. And the first one is this, that transformation is possible that you can be changed. The two realities now exist simultaneously. And so you are no longer, if you were a follower of Christ, you are no longer bound by evil and brokenness. You may have a lifetime of addiction. You may have a lifetime of pain and suffering from your family of origin. You may have a lifetime of depression. But those things in Jesus do not have to define you anymore. It can be broken, and you can live in this other side of justice and love and freedom and peace. We are not left to wallow in our sin. We're not stuck in the first half of this passage, but you were dead in your transgressions and sins because you have been raised to new life. You've been brought into the kingdom of God. You've been set on high and ruling up here with Jesus over all things. This is what Paul says of us. There are things, though, in this first list that I can do something about and things that I cannot, right? Let's slavery, for example. We can get involved in great justice ministries about uh, human trafficking, right? We can send money and support. We can go. We can help rescue people and get them out of human trafficking. We can take a shot at some of the evil and brokenness. We can, we can vote certain ways. We can act in our own communities and say, hey, that's, this is an evil of drug addiction, and we want to do something about it. And we can get involved and try to make, make a good run at some of these things. But not death. Death is the one thing that we can do nothing about, right? And that's what Paul is talking about. He's saying, look, you can be changed and transformed, but it's not your work that's doing it. It's because God invaded you. Because God invades your community, because God comes into your church, because you had a moment where you were blind, but now you see you have been rescued by God, his interaction, his coming into your world. So we do work over here, but it's not our work that actually changes anything. We do work in our own hearts, but it's not the work that we do that changes anything. It's the Holy Spirit enlivening and empowering the work of God in us, transforming and changing us. Does that make sense? So when we read that, now we have this new framework. We see like, oh, God's kingdom is coming into me, and I'm becoming more like list two than I am like list one. That's the first thing. The second thing, uh, figure out where the heck in my notes are. Here we are. This front and back thing messes me up every time. Oh, I wanted to say this about this. There's this verse in here. 
And I love it. It's the very last verse, verse 10. We are what he has made us. You got to hold on to that, right? We think in our culture about what we make of ourselves, what we make of our life, what we make of our family, what we make of our finances, right? We choose career paths that are going to lead us to a certain, uh, certain way of life so we can have a house or a boat and we can play and we can travel and we can do those things. And we think we're making ourselves. But in terms of heaven and hell and what God is doing, he is making us and it is what he has made us, created for good works, Oh, what does that mean? We got to go out and uh, just serve the poor every weekend. We got to go out and he's talking about this stuff. The times where we act out of blessing, where we act in shalom, where we act in freedom, where we bring justice and love and life to the world. These are the good works he's talking about. And it's a way of life. It's not just a one-off thing. It's not a mission trip. It's not a program that you join and, and become a part of. It's not going to rooted class and doing a service project. It's every day of every day of your life, 24-7, living out of this second set of words. We are moving toward things by doing justice, by caring for the creation that he is restoring, by renewing things and by setting people free. The very things everybody wants, right? Talk to anybody in the culture. They're going to be like, do you want justice and freedom and love? Yeah. Do you want more life and peace and blessing in the world? Yeah. They all want it, but not everybody's going to live over here. And the invitation to Jesus is to move toward it. The second big thing is this, and this is quick. We would describe this as heaven. And these words, if this is, this is eternity right here, violence, slavery, death, evil, brokenness, curse, how would you describe that? Hell. You guys weren't as quick on that one as you were the earlier ones. You're still trying to get your brain around some of this, I think. We describe this as Hell. And what we see in this model is that heaven and hell coexist and intermingle in this world. When we think about the future and being in a permanent state, that's hell. When we think about the future and being in a permanent state of justice and love and mercy and forgiveness and goodness, that's heaven. But in the here and now, each day, we make decisions about how we're going to live. And we're either living out of hell or we are living out of heaven. And we experience people day by day, I've had some experiences this week, of people who are living out of a sense of hell. Their own life has become a living hell in some regards. And Jesus is wanting to set them free and bring them into heaven. And so when we walk and we live and we go out and we go to the restaurants and we go to the, the, you know, the pubs and we go to the movie theaters and we go to whatever, we're, we're carrying this and we're invading hell. Justice, love, mercy, goodness, freedom, shalom, blessing, peace, the things that God has given you and set you far above all the earthly things and granted you adoption, all of the stuff that comes along with it, you're just carrying it into the grocery store in line when the person in front of you has got 950 little tiny items and you need to get to your store or your next thing and you got to rush on and you're feeling impatient as the checker is like, oh, what flavor of chapstick is this? Oh, I like these cookies too. Clip. And you're going, I'm going to kill somebody. <laughs> Which kingdom are you living out of, right? <laughs> when the person is, is tailgating you on the highway and you keep looking in the mirror and you're wanting to brake check them, but you know they're just going to ram right into you, right? And you're just getting irritated and angry and mad. What are you living out of? Are you living out of, out of death or life? <laughs> are you living out of 
violence or peace. The invitation for us is to live the kingdom of heaven now, to practice for heaven now, because this is what it's going to be like when we get there all the time. And if you're not comfortable with it now, what makes you think you'll be comfortable with it when you get there? That actually sounds like hell to me. That's the second thing. Every day has ultimate stakes. Every day. And then the last thing is this. We just need to realize these two things, especially because list two is invading list one, right? It's like this is kind of war language here. It's, it's on the march. It's coming in. It's pushing its way in. There will be friction between list two and list one. And friction is mild, right? It's kind of a mild word for what we're talking about here. People use culture war. People use all sorts of different things. But these two things don't get along. Life and death together don't work out real well. One wants to win. They naturally fight. Not everyone in every culture will think that the things in list one are necessarily bad. In fact, if we start really thinking about this list one, there are probably things in here that you'll think aren't so bad. For example, coffee. I love coffee. Coffee is God's gift to creation. It's his proof that he loves us and wants us to enjoy life. And then it's got this little drug in it called caffeine, which is really wonderful first thing in the morning. And yet there are those days where I need a little more caffeine and a little more caffeine to keep going. And when you start drinking coffee, because you had your first child, because that's the only time that's right to start drinking coffee, and you're going to go insane if you don't, and then they're 15 and you find yourself drinking two or three pots a day, maybe you've entered the realm of slavery. But coffee's not so bad. Okay, I'm drinking coffee right now, just to prove. <laughs> Bless Jesus. Bless Jesus. We are slave to lots of things that we don't think are that bad. Phones, entertainment, certain ways of speaking, certain ways of purchasing, living, traveling. They're good things, they're fine things, but we can become slaves to them. And we, don't, we think slavery is terrible. You're like, yeah, slavery was terrible in the United States in the, in the 1700s. That was horrible. But slavery today is alive and well right in this room. And we're living out of this list and not out of freedom. There are many people who, though, who still culturally say, no, slavery is just normal. It didn't look like what it looked like in the, the South in the 1700s, 1800s. It looks different, and it's okay. Violence. This is a big one in our culture. How do we defend against violence? Violence. We arm up. Ugh. Hard for me to talk about this one because it feels so political. This isn't political. This is heaven and hell. <laughs> This isn't politics. This is kingdom of God. We can't fight violence with violence. We fight violence with peace. Hard to do. Really tricky when somebody's really got you angry or is threatening your life. How do we walk that line? I don't know. You and Jesus are going to have to work this out. But we tend toward violence, fighting violence with violence. There is this friction, and we justify some of this stuff over here. When the kingdom of God, when we get there, that's not how it's going to be. And the invitation now is to adopt a new standard of living. 
a new way of living, not to live from evil and brokenness, from death, from slavery, from violence, from curse, but to start living over here. God has looked at the world and said, it is dead in its trespasses and sin. (laughs) It is passing away. It is broken and not how it should be. This is what the world was intended to be, and it's coming in now. There's going to be friction, and it's not going to always be agreeable to us, but we are invited to adopt this second list, to adopt God's diagnosis of ourselves and of the world, and to live into what he has for us. I go to the doctor all the time, but if I was to go to the doctor and he's going to be like, hey, you're, uh, you're, you're 100 pounds overweight, you're all going to laugh. 100 pounds overweight, and your cholesterol is through the roof. And I'd be like, well, maybe I'll do something about the cholesterol, but I'm going to keep eating hamburgers. Right? I can't adopt half of his diagnosis and expect to get well. Right? I can't take half of it. I can't just look at God and say, oh, yeah, I, I love the justice part. I'm going to get involved in justice things. It's great. We're just going to have a social justice church, and I'm going to skip out on freedom and I'm going to skip, I'm going to be a really rude and mean person and not a peaceful person. We can't do that. That's not how it works. God says adopt the whole diagnosis, the whole thing, and begin to move, transform toward the second list. God is making all things new. And adopting this story means accepting his full diagnosis And being aware that there are things that you are unaware of, right? I know myself better than anybody else in this room. The only other person that knows me as well is Heidi. I know that I have places, coffee, (laughs) where I might be in slavery. I know places where I want to do violence. I know about how the curse is worked out inside of me. I know the places of death that I carry around inside of me better than anybody else. I understand the evil and brokenness that is in my family of origin and that I am passing on to my children, but I don't know the whole picture. I only know some of it. I only know some of it. And so in those places, I am participating with the Spirit to move toward blessing, life, freedom, wholeness. But I also know that there are places that I completely do not know yet. I am unaware of piles of stuff because I'm breathing the air, right? We're breathing this air. We're under this rulers and powers and authority, and they're affecting us and tweaking us and working their magic on us, and we get stuck, and we find ourselves going, wait a minute, my life doesn't look like blessing right now. It looks like cursing. My life doesn't look like peace. It looks like anger. My life doesn't look like freedom. I'm stuck. My life doesn't feel like life, eternal life. It just feels like an endless death. My life doesn't look like justice and love and goodness and beauty. It looks like evil and brokenness. This is a mess. And God's just saying, no, adopt this list, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull you in. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to suck you into this new life that I have for you. That is God's vision for us. And the good news, the gospel is that life is invading this one. And the question for you is, which list are you living from? Now, life is complicated, right? It's big. It's not simple. It's not just a, on a scale of 1 to 10. Never works that way. But right now, I believe the Holy Spirit is probably speaking to you. 
speaking to you about the places where he's showing you, look, look at the life, look at the goodness, look at the beauty, look at the blessing, look at the freedom that you, you have. Like, you've been walking in this. Look at it. It's so wonderful. And it's just like, I just want to just raise my hand and say, thank you, Jesus, for this. The days where I'm like, God, I don't even know if you're real. I start looking at how I've been transformed and changed. And I, okay, maybe there is a God because I, I, I would, if there but for the grace of God go I, that statement is so true, right? Just live out the scripts I was handed. But there are times where I'm over here and there are places where I'm over here and the Holy Spirit is speaking about this too. What is it that God wants to do in you now? The word we use to describe turning from list one to list two is repentance. Scary word. But it's really super good news. It's saying I'm turning my back on list one, and I'm turning toward list two. And God is inviting us to repent. We're going to take this thing off the stage. Hopefully your picture looks better than mine. And we're going to sing a song of worship to close. And I have a prayer to pray over us to close. But I don't want to just end it there. I'd like to give you a moment to like literally think about this. So we're going to take a minute of silence as the worship team comes up and helps me get some things moved around. Let's take a minute of silence and just think, like, where has God brought me into list two? Where am I still stuck in list one? What is God inviting me to? Let's take a minute to think about that, and I'll pray. Pray a prayer over us, and it's going to be up on the screen behind me. Just in forgiving God, I want to repent of my repentance. I've tried to repent, usually out of fear and anxiety, and sometimes as a pious way to earn your forgiveness. But when I see the beauty of your kindness, when the mercy of Christ grips my heart, I'm led back to you. So today I joyfully turn from all of my sin and I walk in your ways because of your acceptance of me. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me? Let's sing these closing songs. We are an altar of broken stones, but you delight in the offering. You have the heavens to call your home, but you abide in the song we sing. 
10,000 angels surround your throne to bring you praise that will never cease. But hallelujah from here below is still your favorite melody. So we sing hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. We sing hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. And should the fire that once burned bright Become an ember my eyes can't see. I will remember your sacrifice. I will abide in your love for me. So we sing hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. We sing hallelujah. verse, I want you to think about those two lists, and the kingdom of heaven invading the kingdom of earth. Oh, what a wonderful day to come, when every knee bows before your name, but we will not wait until it does, for here and now shall your kingdom reign. Let's sing that again. Oh, what a wonderful day to come When every knee bows before your name But we will not wait until it does For here and now shall your kingdom reign You reign So we sing Hallelujah, 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 we sing hallelujah, 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 we sing hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. 
Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly over you from the book of Ephesians chapter 3 verses 16 and 17 Paul says this and I say it to you today I pray that out of his riches that he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ and heaven may dwell in your hearts through faith if you heard nothing else today heaven is invading earth and God loves you Jesus loves you very much, and we love you too. We hope to see you again next week. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, everybody, for being here today. Love to meet with you if I haven't met you yet.